Good morning. We are smack dab in the middle of a series we are calling What Counts? And it really is a look at the um, first and second letters of Timothy. And we talked about the fact that this is a private letter that was written from Paul to Timothy as a means of encouragement and instruction, as a way of cheering him on and helping him to remember to focus on what counts, what matters in the ministry he was doing. Um, and so consequently, we are reminded to focus on what counts and that not everything that is valuable can be counted. And not everything we spend our time counting is truly valuable. And that it is a constant struggle to make sure that we are putting those valuable things first, that our focus is truly on what counts. And last week, Rick talked about the fact that we should try to keep it simple, that we are a people who can overcomplicate things. I don't know about you, but I know I'm pretty good at that. We do. We overcomplicate our lives, and we forget that what matters really is simple. It's Jesus. I'm on... Um, I'm online with a couple of different forums, and on Facebook there are different groups of pastors and church leaders who get together, and they can talk about all kinds of different things. And one of the forums that I am active on talks about um, worship, and it talks about lobby ministry, and they just share new ideas and how they can keep things fresh and, and all kinds of great stuff. And recently someone posted on it that their church is going through this internal strife, this debate of what is better, you know, the old hymn or this new contemporary stuff that we like to do these days. And, and some of the people are arguing, no, we look at these, these old hymns and, and these authors, these were righteous people. These were people of God. And these new contemporary people, we're not really sure what's going on with all of them. And, and of course, the argument goes back, well, yes, but we're looking at people who lived hundreds of years ago. And, and really, you know, it's one of those snapshots where only the best comes to the top. And we're looking today at our contemporary people who live in the light of the camera, who live on social media, where every thought, every deed, every action is being judged and they are learning as they go. And we're watching that happen in a way that never happened in the past. And so the reality is this is not a debate that you're going to hear going on here. Other churches might wrestle with it. Other individuals might wrestle with it. But we really aren't going to argue that back and forth because we want to keep it simple and keep it focused on Jesus. So what Pastor Steve and his worship team does is make sure that the lyrics the words of every song we sing are Bible-based. That what we are bringing as an offering to God are helping us to know God better and are pleasing to him and glorifying to him. <coughs> it is an act and a continued opportunity for us to focus on what counts but it's easy to get caught up, isn't it? It's easy to overcomplicate our lives. I think it's something that each of us can admit we've gotten caught up in. Time 
and again. But what does an uncomplicated life look like? What does it mean or how does our everyday look when we say we're going to focus on what counts? Jesus. Well, it looks like the life of a disciple. And you guys know this because we say it a lot here, but a disciple is someone who is in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of others. And we know this process is lifelong. So yes, when we recognize what Jesus has done with us and when we ask him to be the Lord of our lives, to lead us, to fill us, that we want to follow him, yes, at that moment, we are forgiven. But the process of looking like Jesus, the process of being conformed to his image, that, that takes a lifetime. That is something that happens day in and day out. And we get that word conformed is actually Latin, and it, and it really means formed and together. Formed together, like one another. And that's our goal, that we would be formed together with him, that we would look like him, that we would reflect him, that others would see him when they see us. Okay, now this most likely is not super new information to anybody if you've been here for a while, but what it actually looks like, what it looks like for me every day, what it looks like for you when you walk out of this room, that's something we're continually working out in our lives. How do we live so that others will see Jesus in us every day? Well, let's see what Paul had to say to Timothy. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness. Wait a minute. Flee from all this. What is all this? We don't know what he's talking about here. Let's go back a little bit and see what he was telling our friend Timothy all about. He's reminding Timothy that it can be really dangerous out there that it is a dangerous world and we are surrounded by things that threaten to take our focus off of what counts. He tells Timothy that they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk. Hmm. Does that sound familiar to anybody? There are areas of your life where you're getting stuck in this, these quarrels? Have you ever found yourself in an argument that maybe you're not even sure how you got into because you really just don't care? 
we've had that happen in our house, and uh, my husband and I have a new way of determining things. So we will uh, we'll ask each other, if we're in the midst of a conflict, we'll say, no, wait a minute. How much are you willing to bet? Is this like five cents or five million? You know, and very quickly we can determine how truly invested the other is in this conversation. Often our response is like, oh, five cents, I really don't care. I don't know how we got here. And we're able to move past that. When we, um, when we were first married, um, my, my husband has, his mother has one sister, and um, there is a lot of family tension, as can always happen within larger families. We were very, very close to his cousin for a very long time. And what we started to find happening, though, was when we would get together, inevitably, conversation would turn towards the families. And it would end up being something like, do you know what your mom said about you guys? Oh, you should have heard. And the back, oh, yeah, well, I heard that your mom, and this is what they said, and oh. And pretty quickly, I discovered I was always annoyed with my in-laws. It became very easy to get caught up in what really became malicious talk. It became very easy to get wrapped up and to feel this camaraderie as we started to talk about the negativity that was going on. But the reality was the only thing that was coming of it was bitterness and division. There was nothing good coming from those conversations. It took a few years, but we got to a point where we literally had to say, we can't talk about this anymore. It, it can't be part of our conversation. You say, hey, how's your mom? Good, mine's too. Let's go, we'll talk about something else. We'll move on. Because it was no longer a healthy thing to participate in. We can find that on social media too, can't we? We can get sucked right into the latest controversy or debate or discussion. We can quickly find ourselves jumping on board when we later would be like, gosh, five cents, what happened? We are constantly feeding our brains with strife. We are constantly feeding our brains with drama and wondering why we're stressed. Wondering why we feel anxious when everything we're putting in is causing angst. Paul goes on to tell Timothy, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies, quarrels about words. They result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant frictions between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, this wasn't just a problem in their time. I mean, we all remember Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, right? And there are still tele 
uh, telepastors out there who will come on to TV and they will say, if you donate right now, I will pray your ailment away. But you have to donate first. We are surrounded, surrounded by things that tempt to distract us from what counts. We are surrounded by people who have taken their eyes off the most important thing and desperately want you to follow them. Desperately want you to get on board. You know, we, um, we don't often see examples of Jesus angry in the Bible. He is usually calm, cool, and collected. Maybe a little sarcastic at times, but that's one of the things I love about him. Even when he is suffering and being tortured and to death on a cross, we don't see anger come from him. When we see examples of anger, are when the people that he loves are being led astray. When we see him get angry is when we see corruption and we see personal gain take precedent over loving others. One example is when we see him overturn the tables of the money changers in the temple. He's come through and he's walking through the temple and he is recognizing What's happening? You know, people need to come. They would purchase sacrifices to be purified of their sins. But what he is seeing is not an opportunity for redemption, but rather greed and malice. He is seeing people vying for more money and for higher rankings. He is not seeing contrite and repentant hearts. And in his anger, he drives the animals from the temple area. He overturns the money changers' tables, and he kicks the chairs from underneath those selling the pigeons. He tells them they are a den of thieves and that they have forgotten what was important. They had lost focus on what counts. In Matthew 23, we also see him once again get angry. In this situation, the Pharisees had been drawing him and a crowd into conversation, and they've been continually trying to trip him up, continually trying to get him to say something that would go against the law, that would prove that he was not who they thought him to be, that would prove to these people listening and watching that he was not worthy of being followed. And of course, they can't do that. Every answer he gives just serves to silence them. But as he concludes, he turns to the people and he warns them not to be like these Pharisees. And he begins to talk, and it's called the seven woes, the woe to you, as he addresses these Pharisees. And as he tells them, you have forgotten your first love. You have closed the door to heaven in the faces of those who should be following you. 
He tells them that they have loved self and money and the letter of the law over the people for whom they were put to lead. Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I love that. Strain out a gnat. <laughs> we swallow a lot of camels. We are easily distracted. That's what Paul is warning Timothy about. Remember why you are called to ministry. Keep your eyes on what matters. Keep your eyes on justice, mercy, faithfulness. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And so that returns us to the question we were originally posed. What does it look like? How do we live Jesus? How do we reflect him every day? I mean, it sounds huge, right? It sounds almost overwhelming. And it can be when we try to do it on our own. When trying to be good or trying to check off rules is what it's about, we are inevitably going to be feeling overwhelmed and we become in danger of losing sight of more important things. Things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. Things like Jesus. was recently um, speaking with a veteran and um, she mentors other uh, female veterans. And uh, some of these women are out of service completely and some of them are from active to reserve duty. Um, but all of them are struggling. And as many of you may know, the, um, the services provided to our veterans can be challenging to find the resources that they need. Um, they, they need greater opportunities. They need greater uh, places to be able to go to receive the care they need. Um, and, and so, unfortunately, because of some of the things that they are facing while they are, while they are in service and then coming home without the support that they necessarily need to reintegrate, we often see a high level of, of our veterans struggling. They struggle with mental health issues. The suicide rate is 50% higher for veterans than it is for civilians. And female veterans have an 18% higher rate than the male veterans do. And while this is a larger commentary on how our society in general deals with both our honorable men and women who have served as well as mental health in general, 
This particular woman has decided that while she cannot fix the whole system, she is going to do for one or two what she would want to do for everyone. And so she commits her time to weekly meet with different veterans. And it's really an opportunity for them to talk about how they're doing in life, to lean on each other, to have a firm foundation, a point of reference they can return to. Now, because it's through the government, she is not a chaplain. She can't go in and, and talk a whole lot about spirituality. But inevitably, throughout the conversation, she is playing with her prayer square. And when conversations become difficult, when emotions are heightened, she'll reach her square over and offer it to one of the women. Okay, why, what is this? And she'll say, well, you see, there's this group of ladies in my church, and they knit these. They call them prayer squares. And I know when I'm holding this that someone has prayed for me with every stitch that's here. And it helps me remember that God's got me. Even when I'm feeling alone. And she'll pull a few more prayer squares out of her purse and lay them on the table. And they almost always go home in someone's pocket. Years ago, we also had a firefighter. He's retired now and living out in Lancaster, but he had a prayer square. And whenever they would get a call, and they would be getting ready and loading their equipment and, and getting in their gear, it was the first thing he took and put in his pocket and then put his gear over top of it. And after watching him do this for weeks, some of the other men were like, dude, what, what are you doing? What is that thing in your pocket? And so he would take it out and have the same conversation. Well, you know, these ladies in my church, they make them and they pray for me. It's like, and I always want to have it right here because it reminds me who's really in charge when I'm going into a fire. And pretty soon, there's a whole host of firemen carrying prayer squares in their pockets before they were going into a fire. My husband's a teacher, and in his school district, they honor students uh, once a month. They pick students who demonstrate outstanding characteristics and um, show great character. And those students are then asked, you know, hey, who are some of your most influential teachers? Who are those teachers who have meant the most to you, have impacted your learning, things like that? And then they ask those teachers to come to the board meeting, and the teachers get to present the award to the student. It's really a very cool thing. And um, inevitably, the kids say, Mr. Mann. And look, he's a great teacher. He brings history alive and all that good stuff. But that is not why they mention him. They mention him because they know he cares about them. They know he'll be there for them. They'll tell him the tough things. 
they see something in him that they don't fully understand, but they know he's a safe place. And the work he does there is not so much about teaching history. There's a group of businessmen right here in this church. They get together on a regular basis and they pray for their employees. They support each other. They do Bible study. They have chaplains that minister to their employees. They don't run Christian businesses. They are Christians who run a business. And they hold each other accountable they spur each other on. Not a single one of the people that I've talked about would tell you they have it together. Every one of them would say they are a hot mess and they are still figuring things out and they have doubts and they have concerns and they mess up more than they get it right. But every one of them would tell you that Jesus is their most important thing. And that's the difference. When we pursue our relationship with Jesus, when we dig in to that relationship and figure out what it means to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, Inevitably, it starts to reflect out of us. And because we reflect different, because we reflect Jesus, we should look different than the rest of the world. We should look like that safe place to land. We should look like love and godliness and endurance and gentleness. This charge that Paul gives Timothy is ours as well, to cling to our faith. And if we're going to do that, we need to know who Jesus is. It's one of the reasons why we've been encouraging you through this whole series to read First and Second Timothy. They're super short, I promise. You'll get a chapter a day. It's easy. You can use your Bible app. It's super simple. But again, it's about getting into the Word and meeting Jesus there. You hit something that gives you question? Ask. Ask a pastor. Ask your small group. That's why we have small groups, so that we can grow and ask and wrestle together with what it means to be like Jesus every day. But we also have to know ourselves, right? We need to know our triggers. We need to know how we react emotionally and when we need to remove ourselves from a situation. We need to know when what we are putting in is causing our internal emotions to go out of control and we need to stop putting it in. To take a break and focus instead on Jesus. And we need to be ready to give an answer. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. We should look different. 
inevitably, people are going to ask us why. That's our open door. That's our opportunity to say, you know what? I met Jesus and I haven't been the same since. It's our opportunity to introduce them to a relationship that could change the course of their lives. It's about our relationships with him and our relationships with others. And allowing him to be a part of all of us, of our homes, of our jobs, of our hearts and our minds, of our emotions. Allowing him to influence us so that as we go out, his influence is on others. So when people ask us, what does it look like to take Jesus into our everyday lives? It looks like you and me. Doesn't require an advanced degree, doesn't require perfection, simply requires relationship. First with him and then with others. So how will we choose to live our lives this week? How will we choose to reflect Jesus? It's our daily challenge. Will you stand with me in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are so grateful. We are so grateful, God, that you don't call us into a complicated relationship, but rather you call us into the simplicity that is you. Jesus. We ask, God, that you would help us to know you better and in knowing you better, that you would help us, Lord God, to reflect your love to everyone we come in contact with. And God, when we do that, we will give you all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So go out this week knowing that you have a God that goes with you, who shines through you, and who wants to use you to be Jesus to the people you know. Have a great week.